Bible. God's good book. That's right. Genesis chapter 1 through 9 actually gives us God's version of prehistory. You know, the prehistoric stuff. So that man might find meaning with God. Who God calls us all Adams. And the modern Adam gives us the impression that for some reason we should apologize for such a tall tale, but God does not apologize for Genesis chapter 1 through 9. Neither does Jesus, especially Noah and the flood. So what does God, what does Jesus find so meaningful in this flood story? Well, come on in. Let's take a look. You're going to find this interesting. glad that somebody shows up to hear about God, talk about God, and it's our God-given task to just simply talk about God and to bring God's ideas into our lives. If we want to wring the chamois out of our lives and out of our existence, out of our state of being the most, if we want to get the most out of life, I promise you the Bible has what it takes. Don't listen to the museums. Don't listen to the textbooks. Don't listen to anybody. Go to God. And get together with godly people and, and talk about how good God's stuff is. And so we're here to talk about the good stuff, God's stuff. And yeah, we're going to take a double look at Genesis chapter 1 through 9 because we just couldn't get to what we needed to um, the last time. So if you missed the exposition or the look at the text of Genesis chapter 6 through 9, check out the last video. This one's going to go a step further and take a look at what, well, what God says. Jesus says about Noah and the flood. And I think we're going to find an interesting look here that we should take a, a lesson from. Anyhow, um, we're not going to read uh, our text. We're going to have a, a multiplicity of texts to look at. Um, we'll read them as we get to them. And we'll hear what Jesus and his gang has to say about Noah and the flood. So let us just pray the way the Lord Jesus teaches us how to pray. Um, our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and whew, forgive us our sins as we forgive others who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's the name of the game, isn't it, Lord? Deliver us from evil. And which you do, you are a great rescuer. And I'm thankful. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All righty. So like I said, God's going to give us his version of prehistory in Genesis chapter 1 through 9. And our world seems to be a bit embarrassed about this. And I would say, be careful taking anything from this world. So we're here to build you up. We're always here to make you look good, make you sound like the smartest person in the room uh, when it comes to all things God. And we're here to help you to avoid some pitfalls that have classically been fallen into by, well, the brothers and sisters of Christ. You know, hey, we're not we're not perfect. That's for sure. In fact, you know, we're, we're just jerks like, well, the rest of the jerks. So anyhow, we we have to wrestle with this idea of prehistory, prehistoric. And as we do, we recognize that prehistory is mysterious. I mean, it's really mysterious and quite mystical as well. 
I think one of the biggest troubles that we have with prehistory is, well, nobody from prehistory seems to be able to talk for themselves. And those bones that we find that tell us that there's definitely prehistory out there, well, those bones, well, they simply didn't uh, put their words down in a way that we could understand them. That's why it's called prehistoric, prehistory. Get used to that because, I don't know, for a long time, I just thought prehistoric meant dinosaurs. Maybe it does. But anyhow, uh, we're here to look at prehistory, and God's taking a look at prehistory, and God's going to give us a very, very brief account in this prehistory. And so we got to admit that in our world of atoms that we live in, any history, you know, official history of prehistory is a bit of a contradiction in terms. But still, there is a great pretension um, about prehistory today. A pretension like, you know, a bunch of know-it-alls saying they, they got it, they got this. And so the first thing I think we need to wrestle with is the fact that prehistory does not mean primitive. I know I used to think like that, and that's because I was sucked into, well, what the museums and the textbooks were trying to tell me. You see, prehistoric civilizations did exist, and we all know that. But prehistoric civilizations were just what they were, civilizations. And those civilizations were people like us, not unlike us. And so it's science itself that plays a dirty little trick on us by throwing man, mankind, under the slow drift of a bus. When it throws prehistory into what we feel like is a slow drift of primitive evolution. And what we come away with in this primitive evolution is a bit of an embarrassment, you know, because what we see in prehistory or think we see is ourselves, well, in an embarrassing light, making marriages with clubs in our hand, you know, hauling that uh, bride-to-be or that bride that we just claimed by the hair with a club in some sort of Fred Flintstone outfit. But we don't talk like Fred Flintstone. We just grunt, stuff like that. That's the trouble that we get into. But there seems to be some sort of devilish desire to strip us of our astonishment of being. The world I live in today always seems to be stripping me or trying to strip me of my own astonishment of just existing on this planet. And so that's what the Bible's trying to prevent us from as well. You see, when, in, when we go to the Museum of Natural History and when we look at our kids' textbooks, we find ourselves quickly feeling like we need to apologize for our less than human selves. You know, that what seems to be a pre-human status, uncivilized, clubs, grunts, embarrassing, if you know what I mean. There seems to be a devilish desire to get us all doubting our origins, or at least being embarrassed or apologetic about them. The museum and the textbook just have a way of stripping us from any kind of meaning and any kind of purpose, any kind of astonishment at our own being, by forcing us to confess that our story, well, if it's not the story of the museum or the story of the textbooks, needs an apology. Hmm. We're left feeling kind of insecure and ashamed, which is in of itself a very devilish plan, if you know what I mean. But the old stories, those old stories, all the old stories, 
from prehistory actually hold the very substance of being. They hold the substance of being like we are being. They hold the, you know, us by encouraging us and they encourage our imagination. And it's what inspires us to music and art and technology and philosophy and yeah, religion. The museum and the textbook, they're fun suckers to our very existence. Genesis chapter one through nine though, proposed to be God's brief prehistory of man so that man might actually find meaning with God, who God called the atoms, and that God, calling the atoms the atoms, created the atoms. God's aim, his whole ambition in Genesis chapter 1 through 9, is to actually strip us from our devilish insecurities and to give us some meaning, you know, so that we can ring this chamois with some real heartfelt purpose. Original sin is original. No doubt, because it's about our origins. Heck, everybody knows there's something the matter with man, the atoms. There's something the matter with us. And the Bible's setting out to give us a very clean explanation of what's the matter with us. So God doesn't apologize for Genesis chapter 1 through 9, and neither does Jesus. Um, and it's very fundamental to our search for meaning. And we should be on a search for meaning. The thing that worries me most about life today is that people don't seem to be even searching for meaning, but they are, even if they don't know it. And they'll find meaning, but it won't compare to what God makes for us. Well, unlike the museum and the textbooks, there's no need to apologize for these stories. Just understand them. And what does God and Jesus find so meaningful in the flood story to begin with? Well, first of all, let me say this. The scientists, well, they find the embarrassment of the flood in the fact that they feel like they can so quickly answer, well, everything that needs answers. Because they say, hey, we can explain those seashells up in the mountains quite easily. Plate tectonics smashed together, created those mountains. So, of course, what used to be on the seafloor is now in the mountains. Easy. Done. End of story. Cancel that myth. Science wins the day. Yeah, okay. But what the scientists failed to do is exactly what Cain failed to do, and that is to give an explanation for other things. The one thing that the scientists failed to give an explanation for is why is it? Why is it that there are flood stories in every corner of the globe where there is man, where there is the atoms? Wherever the atoms are, you're going to find some sort of a flood story. And so why is that? Sure, I get it. The seashells are explained by plate tectonics. But why does everybody have a flood story? Hmm. Well, secondly, I also want to say that Jesus never asks anybody to pledge allegiance to some sort of bizarre facts, you know, about how much water actually flooded the earth? What was the scope of the flood? Nor does Jesus ask us to pledge allegiance to how many animals actually fit into that doggone ark. And were they really from all over the earth? Really? Like, you know, South American animals and Asian animals, and North American animals, and African animals. Really? Okay. And all the birds too, by the way. Now, Jesus does not ask us to pledge allegiance to those details, which, you know, are kind of like Jeopardy details, uh, fun facts and interesting stuff, I suppose. And 
And I don't think God has any trouble with us saying, boy, I, I, I don't get it. I don't, I don't know how those facts could be true. Not a problem. But what we do got to do is pay attention to what Jesus finds to be absolutely invaluable about these stories. And so Jesus, not making any apologies for Noah, in fact, he actually cites Noah as having a real life, as real as his own life. So if you doubt Jesus' life, well, then there, I don't think I'm going to offer you any kind of help here whatsoever. But Jesus actually cites Noah's story as real as his own story. Moreover, Jesus teaches everything about himself from the whole of the Old Testament, which actually includes Genesis. And when Jesus teaches from the Old Testament, what he's doing is actually validating the Old Testament. And so when he validates the Old Testament, he's actually giving meaning to the whole thing. In fact, anything taught from the Old Testament really does need to be run past Jesus first. That's the real way that you ought to read the Old Testament. And, uh, I, you know, boy, nothing makes me cringe more than a Christian who says, well, I don't really like the Old Testament, I just like the New Testament. I shake my head and I say, well, that's funny because Jesus certainly seemed to like the Old Testament because he was always quoting from it. And he, was, he taught everything about himself from that Old Testament. And I will say this. I'll go another step further and just say this. The, the church has made mistakes. And when the church does make mistakes, it makes mistakes based on taking stuff from the Old Testament without running it past Jesus to see what he had to say first. And there are well-meaning Christians who quite simply just get their nose out of joint for things that Jesus never had his nose out of joint with. Now, there are people that claim and say very loudly, and they actually yell it from the top of their lungs, which is also, you know, a turnoff to most people. But, you know, the people that yell that they take the Bible literally oftentimes mean very well but they oftentimes have forgotten to run everything past Jesus first and to make sure that they sound like Jesus whenever they're handling the Old Testament and taking it so literally. I think part of the trouble in America, at least, is that the Americans, you know, seem to drop in the word inerrant when it comes to the Bible. Previously, the word that every Christian used of the Bible um, going way back, you know, to as far as people were writing, was that the Bible was infallible. Infallible means it will not fail. It won't fail you. It doesn't mean you're not going to find a mistake or two, but it does mean that those mistakes are insignificant, okay? When we use the word inerrant, it seems to Wow, it just brings the fun suckers out of the woodwork and they scour the text and they find little things, you know, that you know seem to be errors. You know, and and I don't even doubt that the Bible does have some errors, but what errors are there are insignificant. There is no error in comparing different, you know, texts to one another that changes anything substantially even a little bit, really. So there are some differences in there. And so once again, the idea of being infallible suits us a lot better because it will not fail us. The stories are intact. Everything is intact, saying exactly what it needs to say. And we need to make sure that our approach to the Bible is the approach that the Bible gives us itself. And that kind of language that the Bible doesn't fail us 
is the language of Jesus. It's the language of the Old Testament. It's the language of the Bible. So we got to be very careful when saying, you know, I take the Bible literally. Because if you take the Bible literally, here's what I think you mean. I think that you have understood the literature as it was written in its own historical setting first. That's what being literal means from the Bible's own method. So once we figure out the skills of the author who, who is writing the text with a literature in mind, with a style of literature in mind, to an audience that is bathed in history, you know, a real historical audience, only then are we allowed to come away with a theological meaning or a philosophical meaning. Okay, so let's just do Noah a solid. Let's do the flood story a solid. Let's do Jesus a solid. Let's do God a solid and just do it right by listening to how the rest of the Bible looks back on the Noah story, the flood story, so that we can understand what we're supposed to take away from this story. So it goes like this. Um, the first stop that we've got to make um, is Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah living, um, you know, contemporarily, you know, in the same kind of days, not in the same place, but the same kind of days as, as uh, Homer did. And, uh, you know, if you doubt that Homer existed as a human being, well, then I suppose you'll doubt that Isaiah exists, you know, existed too. But Isaiah exists, and Isaiah has um, a big message. One of the reasons why he has a big message is because, well, this message is some direct quotes from God. Now, I don't have any doubt that, uh, you know, Isaiah put his own, you know, flair of writing and putting down what he heard from God. But these are the words from God. And when you get to Isaiah chapter 54, verse 9, you're going to find God talking about Noah. And what God talks about when it comes to Noah should take us, well, by, by surprise, I suppose. Well, it goes like this. If we look at what Isaiah says in chapter 53, we know that what God is announcing is that he promised a rescuer. He promised um, a rescuer that was in line with his promise that this res that he made you know, clear back to Genesis chapter 3 when he promised that there would be a son of a woman who would crush the head of evil once and for all. And Isaiah 53 makes it plain that this rescuer that God is sending, this promised deliverer from evil, is actually going to take on the form of a human who is a suffering servant. So once Isaiah 53 is done, you know, talking about the nature of this suffering servant, um, we get famous passages out of that, like, um, we all like sheep have gone astray, bah, bah, do bah, bah. Each of us has turned to his own way, bah, bah. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Go back and read Isaiah 53. It's a great read. But when we get to Isaiah 54, now God is talking about what it will mean when this servant the suffering servant comes and God goes straight to the days of Noah. Here's what the text literally says. This is like the days of Noah. And this is God speaking. So Isaiah is putting this in quotes, so to speak. 
This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. I will not rebuke you. The mountains may depart. The hills might be moved, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Okay. So when God is reflecting on Noah with Isaiah, first and foremost, seems like God takes Noah and the Noah story to be a real story that has real significance. Because in that story, lots of good things happened. Like God made promises to rescue the godly and he rescued them. That's the point of the story. And, and now God is announcing that when the suffering servant comes, it'll be like the days of Noah to him. All positive, all good, because God relishes in how he saved Noah. And when he saved Noah, he was showing the rest of the world that he can save us too. You see, Noah wasn't special. He wasn't that great of a guy. He was a good guy, but he wasn't that great of a guy. If God would save Noah, he'll save you too. And so the idea that God promises rescue, promises rescue, is the idea that God draws from the flood story of Noah. The flood story of Noah from God's own eyes is great news for us because God saves the godly. Those who reach out and want to be saved by God are going to be found saved by God. That's good stuff. And then we have Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 36, which seems to be on the outset one of those boring genealogies, you know, that fill up the pages of Genesis as well. But the ge genealogy that Luke gives us, you know, takes Jesus himself back through to the son of Shem, the son of Noah, and this is in Luke chapter 3, verse 36. Son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, la, 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 son of Seth, son of Adam. Now, the Bible's genealogies are quite original, meaning that we really don't find religious literature using genealogies like this. The Bible's genealogies are original because what the Bible's genealogies are doing, well, maybe we should talk about what they're not doing. The genealogies in the Bible are not giving us a way to date the earth or to know, you know, how long ago it was that Adam lived. It's not how they're being used at all. The way they are being used, these genealogies that we do find boring, and they are a tough read, I guess, but they add a reality of history to the story, a reality of history with real people, real people with real names. And, and real people with real names is the object of the message, not some sort of fantasy. You see, when Homer writes his epic, you know, he doesn't include genealogies because he knows, he, he knows he's writing about fantasy. And he says as much. He hopes it's real, but he's trying to get people drummed up. He's ginning them up on, you know, a good vibration kind of story to get back to the old gods, all of the gods. But the whole Bible is put together with this reality of real people in a real time, in a real place, in real history, and in real prehistory as well. You see, human beings have that distinction of history and prehistory. You know, those prehistory people, they could have been writing. We just don't have anything that they wrote. The whole Bible 
though, is connected, and that's what's so impressive about what Luke is trying to say here, is that the whole Bible is connected up on the same story that reaches back through genealogies of real people that goes the whole way back to Adam. So when you come to Jesus, he is the final connection of this big, giant, 2,000-year plan that God has been telling. This story that, she, that God has been telling for 2,000 years has, has, has an amazing aspect to it because it's amazing that for 2,000 years, God has been able to keep people involved in the story in a way that they can't predict the ending, but yet he has them involved exactly the way he wants them to be involved, revealing the bits and the pieces coming uh, along till we finally get to the climactical end of the story, and that is Jesus Christ. The Bible truly is original. It is not really a comparable document to any other religious text. It doesn't work like other religious texts works. And the genealogies are part of that. Linking up Jesus to the genealogy of Noah, to, to Adam, means that he is that promised son of the woman who crushes evil's head. That guy is here. That is the, the broadcast message that Luke is making. And then there's Jesus himself. Matthew records, and I think the other Gospels record this too. Well, I know they do. But Matthew chapter 24, verse 36 actually has Jesus making commentary on Noah. Here's what Jesus has to say. Jesus tells his own audience, a group of people listening in. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Well, if you're not familiar with the Bible, when Jesus talks about the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, which is a reference to, well, himself. Okay, so what he is saying about himself is that he is coming back and that the days of Noah certainly seem as real to Jesus as Jesus seems real to himself. The future is real to Jesus as well. And the future is real to Jesus because Jesus is making a promise that he is coming back. And when he comes back, well, it's going to be a different story. The fact that he's going away and not coming back for a while indicates that God's judgment has been delayed since the time of Noah. And that's great news. God delays his judgment. Ever since Noah, God has been delaying his judgment. But don't be misled that that delay, it's going to end. And that's the point that Jesus is making. There will be an end to the delay. There will be a time, just like in the days of Noah, when God says enough. He will only let this world rebel for so long and to so much length. And there will be judgment when Jesus returns again. But again, this is not the, the most popular thing that Jesus talks about. What Jesus talks about, though, is salvation. The good news of salvation, that God actually has salvation in store right now, that the message that God has from the days of Noah until now is salvation. 
that he's going to save us, that he's going to rescue us, that he has a plan and, and that life will keep going on until it just doesn't. Life is going to go on until it doesn't. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, remember Noah, because that's the way it was with Noah's generation. It went on, life went on until it didn't. And then it didn't. So don't misunderstand delay as no judgment. And I don't know about you, but that is one of the greatest frustrations people have in this world is they feel as though, you know, the delay means there is no God. Jesus says, no, 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 no. The delay means good news for you and good news for future generations as well. But there is a day when Jesus is coming back and when he comes back, it's going to be like the days of Noah. The ungodly are going to be swept away. There will be a time of justice, well, and God's going to see to it. He promises it. Then there's uh, Jesus' best friend, Peter. Peter, uh, you know, in both of his letters, actually takes the time to refer to Noah. So that gives me the impression that Jesus must have talked about Noah a decent amount. Peter, who, you know, was Jesus' you know, best friend, if we might say that, um, quotes Noah. Here's what Peter has to say. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from your body, for Pete's sakes. I added Pete's sakes. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. Once again, the days of Noah seem very real to Peter. No surprise, Peter trusted God, Noah trusted God, and so the days of Noah seem extremely real to Peter, just like they seem very real to Jesus. And Peter links Jesus' death and resurrection as a rescuing, like God rescued Noah, and judging evil. And that's, that's what Peter says Jesus' death and resurrection is all about, rescuing, like Noah, and judging evil. Jesus is the judge of evil, but he's also the savior of mankind, and these are the days of salvation. Well, anyhow, um, God offers salvation. That's the main message. That's the big takeaway. God is offering salvation. This text always makes me wonder, um, you know, and I think it is okay to wonder things. You see, Peter tells us that, you know, Jesus, when he died, was actually made alive in spirit. And when he was made alive in spirit, he actually seemed to have gone back and talked to people who had died in the rebellious days of Noah maybe giving them one last opportunity to take a look at what they missed. I don't know, it makes me wonder if Jesus still does that for people who die, kind of make sure they understand what they might have missed when it comes to him. I don't know, you know, in my world, God is very nice, he's very good, and it wouldn't be surprising to me that we could take that away, but that would be saying too much. It doesn't actually say that, but what it does say is, hmm, Jesus' death and resurrection is is like the days of Noah, God's judgment and God's salvation. 
Well, anyhow, Peter again in the second letter says, If God didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, herald of righteousness, with seven others, and he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. You see, Peter, again, he just sees the days of Noah as a reality that is important because it parallels our own reality. Noah trusted in God's rescue and his judgment. That's the point of contact for us as well. We should be looking for God to actually do both. We should be looking for God to both judge and save. And the Noah story is a clear help to help us to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus once again. And I love how Peter just kind of, it's almost like sarcasm, you know. He, he's like, well, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Because Peter knows that the godly face trials all the time. Peter knows that the godly are going to have a rough life, just like anybody else is going to have a rough life. And when people are ha having and experiencing the roughness of life, they need to understand that God knows how to rescue his people. And God will rescue the godly. Have every confidence in that. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7 says, uh, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet had been unseen, in reverent fear constructed that ark for saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became a heir of righteousness that comes by faith. Do you want to inherit God's righteousness? He should. If you do, then look at what Noah did. He just simply took God at his word. He trusted God. And, uh, well, we, we don't have to build an ark, which is nice. Um, but what God is telling us is that we do need to look to Jesus Christ as that righteousness that comes through faith. You see, Noah trusted God with judgment and rescue. Noah wasn't perfect. Um, he makes mistakes. Uh, bad things seem to happen to Noah as well. But he's a hero because he's faithful. He trusts. He relies. He trusted God for, well, he trusted God when the world was jeering what he was doing. And believe you me, believing in Jesus as judge and rescuer will lead us to be jeered by this world as well. The world will simply find this. Well, that's where we go to Jude chapter or uh, verse 10. Jude verse 10 says, reflecting on, you know, Genesis 1 through 9, people blaspheme all that they don't understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them. For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. You see, others could have entered the ark, but it just didn't match their understanding and their instincts. And this is where humans, atoms, get into a lot of trouble. We come up with our own understandings and our own instincts, and we trust them more than we trust in God. The way of Cain lives on. And that's what the you know, author here in, in Jude 10 is saying. People still walk in the way of Cain. Cain is alive and well in, in the way that we are. We are like Cain, not unlike Cain. And the way of Cain that lives on is, is people who 
who simply have jealousies over other people that are doing it better than them, people who are butthurt and vindictive and unforgiving and, you know, taking matters into their own hands with their own verbal punishments and physical punishments. Blasphemous. We destroy ourselves. That's, I think, the heart-wrenching, you know, point that's being made here. We destroy ourselves with our own ignorance. And, and in our own ignorance, somehow we feel confident. And that's what the text is saying. People tend to blaspheme anything that they don't understand and doesn't match up with their own instincts. But as the text also says, that's how the animals live. Animals live by their own understandings and their own instincts. We've got to rise above that. We've been made to do better. We're the image of God. Heck yeah. And as the image of God, we need to understand this part about the flood story. No, uh, Jesus is not going to hold us accountable to the trivial details of the flood story. Um, maybe if you go on Jeopardy, that'd be a good time to know things like that. But what you need to take away from the story is what Jesus says you need to take away from the story. And those who get wrapped up in the little details and blaspheme what they don't understand, it reminds me of when Jesus told another story about two guys that died. And one guy was rich, and he didn't seem to go to where the guy who was the poor beggar went. And the rich guy pleads with Abraham in, in Jesus' story. And he says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to, to my father's house. I have five brothers that he may warn them lest they, they come into this place of torment that I'm in. And Abraham said, well, they've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, then they'll repent. Abraham says, if they, didn't hear, if, they, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I think the sad reality is we're going to live in a world where people just simply won't ever seem to get past their own understanding and their own instincts. And in doing so, they'll destroy themselves. It's not God doing anything to them because God's offering the sweet hand of salvation. And the sweet hand of salvation is sweet because judgment will come. God doesn't want to do it. He's been holding it off ever since the days of Noah. And how, how long is that? I don't know. But it's a long time, and that's good. And that indicates how kind God is, not how detached God is. So anyhow, this is how Jesus and the New Testament and the rest of the Bible handle the Noah story. And that's how we should handle the Noah story, too. Don't go any further. Don't do anything else with it. Just do that with it, just like Jesus says. And that's where we're going to end our time right now. Thanks for hanging out. Good spending time with you. <music>